This is a crowd podcast. Hello, I'm Geraint Thomas. And I'm Tom Fordyce. And you've just entered the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Brought to you by Zwift. Explore, train and compete on the indoor cycling app where fun is fast. Croeso. That's a bit of Welsh for you. Nice to see you, G, and welcome too to any new listeners who have come via the Joe Marler Show, because Geraint, you went and had a very funny chat with Joe recently on his pod, didn't you? So I'm guessing there might be some new faces who've come over now to this one. And if that is you, I reckon, without stereotyping too much, that you may enjoy our episode with George North. And if you're wondering how a man as big as George fits on an ordinary bike, well, it's straightforward. He doesn't. He has to have one custom made. So go and check that episode out after this one. Now, gee, I'll be honest, it's a little bit fresh uh, out there for those of us who are in the UK. It's the sort of weather where you really have to rug up, isn't it? Where you've got your long sleeve top on. You might have a gilet over that. You might have one of those little caps that go under your helmet. You've got your warmest gloves on. You've got overshoes. For you in LA, it's slightly different. Yeah, just shorts and jersey. Get ready in a minute, Tom, and straight on my bike. So, yeah, feeling rather smug at the moment. But... um to be fair, we chase the sun all year round, don't we? We're pretty lucky when we, as professional cyclists, like, yeah, before Christmas we were in, we stayed in Mallorca a few extra days, me, Luke and Swifty, um, just to make the most of, you know, the good weather before Christmas and going home and eating mince pies and all that jazz. And um, on our last night, actually, we went out for a curry and these boys came in, like, it was dead. There was only us in the restaurant. Then, how many was there? Three lads and one of their dads walk in just got chatting to him a bit you know and um we ended up inviting them on our ride on our last ride there that's a nice touch yeah so, so i was expecting like oh i've got to be back at a certain time we're doing a big seven hour loop join us for the first bit on the flat if you want or you know you can stay with us as long as you want but i have to be back at a certain time um so i got a podcast recording with tom fordyce you know i can't keep him waiting nice big chat so they were like oh yeah cool oh that's amazing thanks so anyway, we met them nine o'clock and turns out they wanted to try and just do this whole ride with us. So we were like, oh yeah, fine. We're just riding anyway. It's just general ride. And um, the night before we'd gone up, or the day before, sorry, we'd gone up Sacalabra and Swifty was on Strava and he, because he, we saw these boys on Sacalabra at the same time. So Swifty's like, oh, I'll just see how good they are. Turns out they went up Sacalabra <laughs> quicker than us. <laughs> um, but they were doing like, they, you know, full gas you know quick as they could go and we just rode up it but we were that night then we were like oh no these boys probably can come with us and kick our heads in now <laughs> um but yeah they they were kind of good first little climb one of them gets all excited you know he's starts smashing yeah, up this climb him. and we were like Phew, he's got a bit of something but we're only three hours in and then yeah sure enough by hour five we stopped for some food and they were all in an absolute or bar one of them they were all in a box and we had the pig to do so we have to go up the pig and go home so this is like 40 odd minute climb isn't it but then it's all downhill from the top more or less but yeah i was like oh don't worry boys i'll pay i'll get this go to pay it was like it was more than the curry the night before it was unbelievable (laughs) the amount of like coffees and sandwiches and stuff we'd had yeah so i got luke to pay off with me and um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then um yeah we started the pig but yeah they were straight away they were out the back and we just left them then because we were like well I, I just need to get back and in a way though it was quite good you know just to 
not to get our egos out or anything, but you know, just sort of, yeah, drop them, make make us feel good, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I think if you hadn't dropped a load of nineteen-year-olds who weren't professional cyclists, then that would have been pretty catastrophic. <laughs> but it's nice. That's a nice story for those boys as well. When they got back from their training camp or their little holiday in Mallorca and sat down with their mates and told them they'd been riding with Garrett Thomas and Luke Rowan, Ben Swift, and their mates all would have called BS. Um, but now we've got now we've got proof. Yeah. So maybe if they listen to this, um, they can get in touch and tell their side of the story about how you were hanging on in that first climb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the dad got dropped early on as well, and we were like, oh, what are we going to do? And I was like, well, we just got to keep going. And then another one got dropped. And we were like, oh, it's okay because, you know, daddy bears behind, so he'll pick him up. <laughs> and those two ended up stopping a bit earlier and going back a quicker way. But the other, there was an extra couple of boys with us as well. But um, yeah, the other four kind of stayed with us. And oh man, before this cafe stop, though, one of them was just seeing stars. Like Luke went back just to check he was okay. And he was just, he was just weaving a bit on the road. And I almost rode into a wall. So we were like, oh, we kind of need to look after him a bit. That's why I thought I'd buy him lunch, you know, but yeah, it was a good day. Good day to end the camp. Good day. Great story. Let's get a guest on. at me whistling in a jaunty fashion. I wish I could whistle as well. Hello, my friend Tom and I... Hi guys, I'm Tom. Yeah, he's Tom. ...have this amazing history podcast. It's called We Didn't Start the Fire and it's the only podcast started by Billy Joel. And Katie, without being boastful, it really is the most original, fascinating and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. I think that's being boastful. We go from Maryland to the Mafia, from the Beatles to bombs. Yeah, it's politics, rock and roll, sport, television, the space race and we're joined by some Pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckery. And me, Tom Fornice. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Search for We Didn't Start the Fire and subscribe now. Tom, good news. The sponsors are back for season two. That is momentous, G. And momentous just so happens to be the sponsors of this next bit. But who are they? <laughs> well, for all you listeners that were listening last season, you'll remember them as Amp Human. Aha, yeah, a leading human performance company that works with over 150 pro and elite sporting teams. And once again, we've got an exclusive discount for you. Gee, what's the lowdown? Well, I use uh, PR lotion all the time. You basically rub it directly in your muscles, you get bicarb directly into them and you know allows me to maximise training sessions and improves recovery time. Yeah, if you try it, the clinical data says you'll get 53% less muscle soreness and be able to do 25% more training intervals. I like those odds, G. So if you fancy slapping it all over your legs before your next big ride or workout, go to livemomentous.com. So that first bit, all one word, L-I-V-E, then M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S. .com. And because you listen to this podcast, we've got you an exclusive discount. Just use the code GTCC2021 at the checkout for 25% off Momentus's PR Lotion. Happy training! So Tom, our guest today is a rider, but of a very different kind. Some would say slightly more cooler than riding a push bike. I'd probably agree as he's a motorcycle racer who, 
well, I'm not sure if he's actually retired or not. I'm sure we can ask him now. Anyway, he's a three-time race winner in both MotoGP and Superbike World Championship. So it's pretty fitting that we get him on to talk about speed. Welcome to the GTCC, Carl Crutchlow. How are you, mate? Yeah, good to you. Thanks very much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure. Well, thanks for coming. Just to, to clear one thing up, are you retired now? Uh, half and half. I'm retired from racing. So um, after 10 years in MotoGP, probably 20 years of racing, sort of full time, I'd had enough of competing. I'd had enough of travel and being around the world and the stress that it brings along of sitting on the grid. I still love riding the motorcycle, so I'm still actively riding a MotoGP bike for Yamaha as the factory test rider. So I still get my kick. I still get my buzz of, of riding the MotoGP bike, but I don't have to compete. Saying that, I did race this year. I was, re- I was retired this year, but I had to enter uh, four races because one of the riders was was injured. So that's quite normal for a test rider to, to have to step in and jump in when uh, when a rider's injured. So I did that. It was uh, it was nice to go back. Had some dismal results. That was going to be always be the case, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's what threw me. I, I tried to explain it in sort of layman's terms to a normal person so i didn't ride a bike for five months a motorcycle at all i literally didn't sit on a on a bike and then they rang me and said you've got a race so i thought well this is going to be quite funny because it's like say you for instance or um, i actually use the example of uh, kipchoge the runner not going running for five months nothing stopped no running no no nothing but the first time he goes back running again in five months time He's in the best race in the world. So it, it was exactly like that. I got on the bike and nearly crashed in pit lane. Um, <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, it was a wake-up call. But it's so funny how it comes back, though. You get that head rush feeling. You ever go on a roller coaster and you sort of like G out and you start to feel like you're falling asleep? I pulled out of pit lane, accelerated, nearly passed out, and thought, oh, this is going to be a wake-up call. But the next lap at 330k an hour down down the straight, um, and you and you're back used to it again. It's uh, it's a strange feeling. So yes, I'm retired. I'm retired from from competing, but still loving to uh, to ride the MotoGP bike, which is about 25 days a year now. Right. So as a test rider, then you basically well, is what it says on the tin. You're testing new stuff and new equipment and things. Is it or what? Like new tires or new a bit of everything. Essentially. What you always find in racing, in, in motorcycle racing, in, in a lot of sports in the world, the guys that are fast, that are winning, they're very good at being fast and winning, but they don't really, I'm not saying they don't understand the bike because they have to understand the bike, but they don't really care. As long as it's fast, they don't care. Yeah. As long as they can do the job on it, they'll do the job on it. So my job is to evaluate parts, uh, whether that be a chassis, an engine, tires, um, and give the information to say, okay, that's maybe better. That's maybe worse. Don't give them that. Give them that. See what they think. You know, and it just goes like that. So yeah, it's a it's a nice job now. One of the uh, the Yamaha riders won the won the MotoGP World Championships this year, Fabio Quattararo. So that was a massive thing uh, for him, for Yamaha, but also for me. I felt the benefit from that of feeling a sense of satisfaction that he's won on the bike that I've tried to help develop. Also, um, you know, you can relate to it. I can relate to it with cycling as well. But what I always find amazing with motorcycles is there's 24 guys on the grid. There's 24 different bikes on the grid. Yes, some of them are in the same team, the same manufacturer. They're different weights. They eat differently. They live a different life completely. But they go around the track within a tenth of a second of each other or a thousandth of a second sometimes. It's, it, you know, it just shows that 
a lot of the time it's the person and the rider making the difference. You know, you might have one guy that has been a multiple world champion that's 60 kilo, but the next weekend he gets beat by a guy that's never won a race and he's 90 kilo. It's so strange how they manage to get around the track. When you exceed the limits of adhesion, that's when you crash. So you can only go as far as what the tyre, the bike and the rider will, you know, will go around the track or, or, or that package will let you. So my job is to try and make it that it's the limits a little bit further than the other bikes. Yeah, I was going to say, did you find it easy to find that limit when you were racing? Or was it was it quite easy to go over the limit? Gee, how many times have I crashed? <laughs> I used to crash 30 times yeah, a year. Yeah, quite a few. <laughs> yeah, 30 times a year. On the other subject, how many times you crashed? <laughs> hey, mate, we don't talk about yeah, that on yeah, this I pod. Think we would. <laughs> <laughs> so if we're talking about speed, Cal... Right, you mentioned the speed you came out of the pit lane then. What's the fastest you've ever been on a bike? I think we should do top trump speed with you and G. Um, I'm going to lose every time, even on a push bike. Yeah, you might lose on a push bike as well. Really? Yeah. I went, um, so in 2018 or 19 would have been the fastest that I would have went, and it was Mugello straight in, in Italy, in Tuscany. And it was about 357 kilometers an hour. <laughs> but that's through a speed oh. trap. So the worst thing about that is it's actually, you're not actually full throttle because you have to roll over a hill because the bike will just wheelie over this last hill. So it could go faster. We know that they could go a lot faster. It's just that's, that, that's the limit. And but I, I never had the record. Somebody else had the record, and I think it's 359 kilometers an hour. So it's 225 miles per hour, I think that is. Yeah, it's fast. But you, oh. you have no perception of it at all. You have, so they say uh, in the clinical study that from zero to 150 kilometers an hour is when you feel the, the, the rush. But from 150 to 400 or something, there's no difference. You know, you don't feel it anything on your body. Yes, you see things going past faster but you don't realize you're going any faster. Obviously, we keep accelerating the whole time. But from 150 to the 350 we did, you don't feel it. You know, it's, uh, it's a strange sensation to, to ride a motorcycle in, uh, around a track or because um, people just think that you're, you're hanging on for dear life the whole way down the straight. In a lot of straights you are because they're not really straights. But when you're in somewhere like Mugello, it's not straight, but you, you're completely sat into the bike and you're just holding the throttle open. You see nothing different. It's just, it's quite like slow motion in, in a sense. I know that sounds strange, but it's only exiting the corner that you really, really feel it. But I would much prefer, I've said it a million times, I'd much prefer to go 100k an hour, 200, 300k an hour on a motorbike than 100k an hour on a bicycle in the set of Lycra. <laughs> Gee, what's your top speed? Well, my top speed. Uh, it's, it's just a smidge over 100k an hour, I think, in, in Switzerland, just 103, 105. When was that done? It's all Swiss one, yeah. So it was obviously over there, you've got nice, smooth roads, big, wide roads, straight. Yeah, you can get up to quite a bit of speed there. But I don't know, it's just something about like going down there in a big peloton and you look down and you're doing 100 plus, you're just like, this is quite, as Carl just said, you know, when you just got a lycra on, yeah. hits a little stone or I don't know, you know, you don't think about it at the time, but afterwards you're like, oh, bloody hell, like, do we really need to go that fast? Like, when you're just, you know, <laughs> freewheeling down there in the tuck. But, oh, I mean, like, 
I've ridden with Cal a few times when when I've been in in LA, California, or San Diego, and I think you still uh, you test your bikes like twenty five times a days a year. Did you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you get your kicks every other day on a push bike going downhill because you weren't hanging around down them. It's it's strange because when I go when I go downhill, I don't think I'm going fast on a bicycle. Only if I overshoot a corner or something like that. And I have crashed. I crashed actually on the flat at say 45k an hour, and it hurts. Honestly, I know you know I know what you boys feel like when you're having to scrub in the shower and clean out the wounds and stuff like that, and they take a month to heal. And but honestly, doing it day in day out like you guys do when you're racing, when it's nervous. Um, I completely get what you're saying with regards to going down in the centre 100k an hour. I feel it's quite normal, but with other people around you that can take things out of your control or you're actually in a race where it, it means something, I think then it, I'd be you know, more nervous of the situation you know, because you, you're sort of confident in your own ability, but you've got to trust the people around you. Exactly that. Yeah, I've been taken out by so many people recently. Like one not throwing a water bottle, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to lob a couple of Sterling Moss quotes at you two. So Sterling Moss, obviously legendary F1 driver. He had a couple of interesting things to say about speed. He said, speed is tranquility. See, I, I understand it. I understand it because from my side, when I've had my career of racing a motor, motorbike, the faster you go in, the more in control you feel. As in, the faster you're going means you could be winning the race or you could be leading the race or you could be in a great position or something like that. And then you feel a sense of, um, I've tried to explain it before. I'm sure G's had it when he was going up out to Wes alone, um, winning. You're, you're just in a trance that you, you think that you're being filmed from above. Obviously, G was being filmed from above, and I was when I was when I was winning. But I mean, <laughs> um, you sort of just—it is—it's a it's a tranquil moment that you feel at one with whatever you're doing at that at that time. Now, speed in my sport obviously means the faster you're going, the closer you are to winning, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you, I I understand the quote, but when the bike's shaking, trying to flick you off, going to heading towards a barrier in the grass at 300k an hour and you're trying to hold on for dear life say on a practice lap or something like that then uh, it's not so tranquil but yeah i understand the quote absolutely yeah it's a it's a fine line between tranquility and absolute panic and chaos i guess but I, exactly what cal was saying i think when you feel like when you feel at one with a bike when you're just one unit rather than somebody sat on a bike obviously i'm talking about push bike now um like going down some descents it's almost like you're just Every corner is just such a nice flow, you know, a good line in, good speed in. And then other descents, you can just be, it is like you're sat on a bike, you're going into a corner too quick, you're breaking sort of, you're stepping out, you're not on the racing line, you're coming, yeah, it's just, and it seems like you hit a few corners wrong and it can kind of mess up the whole descent for you, like mentally as much as anything. Then you add in maybe rain into the mix, like suddenly it's a completely different descent in the wet depending where you are Italy for instance like those roads can be so slippery and you can do San Remo for instance you can do Cipressa Poggio descents in the dry and you can fly down them and it can feel like you're you know well in control but suddenly one year you can be on your knees coming going into the final sort of 30k been a wet day you know you're depleted you're tired you're hungry 
and then every corner feels like you're just going to slide out or you're sort of really struggling to hold the race in line and yeah it depends on the the mood you're in but when exactly as Carl said when when it's all good it's there's no better feeling really yeah the second quote I'm going to give you sort of ties into the first one really but also also reflects what you said and I'll paraphrase this one slightly but I think someone said to study Moss once aren't you scared of the speed and he sort of said speed the whole business of racing is the opposite of speed he said when you're racing well you don't have a sensation of going fast the corners just come up to you at the pace you want them and he says when the corners come fast that's when you're in trouble because you're not in that zone I agree I agree with that completely because you know compared to G for example apart from the track or when they're racing laps or something they go point to point so they only see something once as such where we see corners lap up on lap uh, and you know the circuit you're going to to an extent Um, if it's a new circuit it's obviously more difficult but when you are in a race situation or, or even a practice situation, but more a race situation, it is. It's about clicking. It's about just not even thinking about what you're doing. And everything you, everything we do is against the clock or a lap time or something like that. So you've got to be consistent. And the faster you go, obviously, the more difficult it is to be consistent because you're then pushing the boundaries more and more and more every lap. So staying within a bracket of being com- comfortable but everything becoming easy, it does make you fast and it does make you consistent, you know, so. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Like you say, when things are just coming up at you quicker, that's when you're sort of, you're always on the back foot. And for me, it's just that mental game in it of just being, feeling good and the flow. It's all about flow for me, I think. When it's good, you just flow and it's just at one and you just can do what you want almost, you know. Does it almost feel like you're looking further as well? Like when I do mountain biking, we're always told, look long, look long, look long, not look just stand at your wheel. So is that another part of being in the flow that it's, it's not only you not consciously thinking about the corners, but you're just looking that much further down the road or around the circuit so that you're processing it more quickly? Yeah, for me, yes. You have to look ahead. You know, if we're going into a chicane, you hardly, I'm not saying you don't look at the first corner, you look at the second corner more. You know, if it, if it's a if it's a chicane, you sort of always focus ahead of what you actually are, because of the speed that you're going. Also, whoever's telling you about the mountain bike is correct. The only thing that brings it into our equation something different is uh, your peripheral vision. You've got to look. You've got to be aware of your surroundings, because if there's someone on the inside of you, or someone on the outside of you, or three blokes, that's that's where it brings everything you're looking at into a different perspective because you have somebody in front of you or right in front of you or you're touching their back wheel to an extent so all you can see is an exhaust pipe, you know, and you're not seeing anything. So, so some riders like that a lot more. They have something to focus on and they do what the person in front's doing and they go as fast as them. But if also if you have a target, somebody a second up the road from us, second's quite a, a big gap, you know, you're not going to pull that back in, in one lap when you're taking hundreds and thousands of a second here and there. So having a target is also quite nice. Does that also, when you can go over the limit a bit as well, though, when you're chasing yeah. someone like that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and and as we said earlier, all riders have different strengths in different areas, um, being different riders. They may go around the track at the same speed, but this guy might break three meters later than you. He might make the corner, you know, in a V shape instead of a U shape, you know, depending on the manufacturer or the rider. 
And then if you're trying to make it in a U shape, but you're breaking where he breaks and he's making a V shape, it makes you run long, you know, into the corner. Um, example, I always knew following Mark Marquez, he was going to break way later than what I was going to break. Um, but he blows the corner a little bit more than me in the middle, but he comes back, you know, so just give yourself that margin that you're not getting sucked in behind him. There's a lot of that, you know, people knowing how different riders ride. What about when it comes to, is you're approaching a corner then, your thought process, is it the same when you're going down a descent on a push bike compared to when you're racing MotoGP? Because I guess you go, it's the same way of going around the corner, I guess. It's just obviously a, a lot different speed. Yeah, I I do. On a, on a bicycle, I do. I ride like I ride a motorbike. I brake really late but I break all the way around the corner where most guys, bicycle riders, you know, from what I understand or know or see, they break quite early into the corner, but then they release the brake and they're hardly trail braking as such, what we would class as trail braking around the corner. They've sort of released the brakes and they're ready to pedal on the way out where I do it the complete opposite. I do, <laughs> I do it the way that I do it on a motorbike. So yeah, you could say that, but the thought process of riding a motorcycle is, is you do everything so natural or you know as a, as a motorcycle racer you don't think about it and one thing that i can never even to this day get my head around is is how we change gear but we don't even think that that we've changed gear or that we know we've changed gear because you do not even process it you do it but you don't process it but you know how many gears you have to change as well but you don't go down the straight or wherever it is thinking I have to change gear. You just do it. You know, if the start and finish straight, if you come onto the start and finish straight in first or second gear, you go up to six gear. Then the first uh, corner is second gear. That means you've changed gear nine times in one straight. Then you've got the whole rest of the track where you change in between all the corners. So it could be 60 or 70 a lap, but you do that for 30 laps and you don't even notice you've changed gear for the whole, the whole thing. Yes, you, know, you don't think about it you've just you're just doing it you know that was that's what always amazed me and on the bicycle a lot of the cyclists that i see they change gear into the corner so that they're in the correct gear on the way out i don't i just blow the corner and then worry about the gears on the way out <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say uh you'd be really good to come like to our training camp because it might sound crazy but there's pro cyclists that really struggle to go downhill like fast. Obviously they go fast compared to Joe Bloggs in the street, but compared to the rest of the pro peloton, there's you got the the top guys, everyone can top 50 say, but then the bottom 50 uh, can be really quite bad. So I thought like someone like you would be great to have along and just talk to guys about going around corners. But by the sounds of it, I think um, you're probably not the best guy. Well, <laughs> I, th- I think it's about being comfortable you've got to go within your own limits and, and that's first and foremost because every time you go down the descent you don't want to crash for a start but for you guys it's about also now a lot more as you see uh, not losing time because people are attacking more and more on on the descent they're trying to push the boundaries not so that people crash but so that they make a mistake but i think following someone always helps maybe not following somebody who's way better than you descending but following somebody that's your level or you're comfortable with no that makes sense actually because like in in a race i love to follow someone like Quiato because you're confident that he can go fast he can handle his bike but he also 
won't go stupid as well. He won't go over the limit to follow somebody that might be going over the limit to just go down the hill. So, but in a race, I find it so much easier to do that than, for instance, like we were saying, like in uh, San Diego with you, when I was like, "Poor, he's going pretty fast there," just just for training, you know. Like for instance, at the moment with my shoulder, some of the boys going down go down quite quick and go around a few cars, you know, and I'm just like, "Count me out of this, lads!" Like I'm, I'm just going to take 10 seconds extra to get down this hill and then we'll carry on you know yeah, yeah um, it makes maybe no that's difference. what comes of age is just knowing the risk the time and a place you know who would you not want to follow g if you were in a, a grand tour who are the riders who everyone in the peloton goes you know what apart apart from your teammates which of your rivals would you be happy sitting behind and which of them would you just either give yourself a little bit more distance or just try and nick cool. in front of i don't really want to name names now in case people listen and then uh I get a bit of shit for that. Well, you got you got brought down by Rafael Micah, didn't you, in the tour? Was that 2017 when yeah, you crashed? Yeah, on that Micah crashed right took in front. You out? Because that was that was an example of going over the top of a climb. It was a bit wet. We I was maybe in fifth, sixth position, and then everyone's fighting for the first corner, trying to outbreak each other. And I was like, boys, you know, we've got 100k to go. It's wet. Why are we doing this into the first corner of the descent? You know, so I backed off a bit, let a few guys in, and Micah was the last guy I let in because he was still right on my hip and coming up into the second corner. I was like, oh mate, if you really want to be ninth wheel, have ninth wheel, I'm going to ride 10th. Anyway, literally 10 seconds later, he's on the deck and I'm straight over the top of him, break my collarbone out the tour. Thanks for coming. But that's just kind of, as what Cal was saying at the start with peripheral vision and, you know, other people in the race, that's when it gets to a whole new level and just going down a hill fast on your own. But yeah, recently I like to give a bit more of a gap anyway, just for that comfort. Um, so rather than leaving, say, a bike length gap, like when you're doing 60k an hour, it's not really that big anyway, but I'd leave two. But then in racing these days, somebody sees a two length, a two bike length gap, they think, oh, gee, struggling now, I've got to get past him. So then it's kind of a fine balance between leaving a big enough gap just to give yourself a bit of breathing space because who knows what people are going to do. So then thinking about the guy behind is going to try and get around you because he thinks you, you, you're about to get dropped and take everyone out the arse. So, yeah. But when it comes to following people, I think Philippe is always, um, he knows what he's doing, you know, Van Aert, Pidcock, you know, all the sort of, um, those cyclocross guys know what they're doing, mountain bikers. Um, people not to follow. Yeah. As I said, I think I'll dodge that question for now. But ask me in a couple of years when I'm retired. Is it weirdly the climbers sometimes who aren't the best descenders because they don't need to be? I mean, you might have been you told me this once yeah. that the, the the great descenders are often the sprinters because they're trying to make up the time gaps and they can handle their bikes. Yeah, exactly that. The, the sprinters obviously are used to sort of, you know, sprinting in close quarters, aren't they? And being like all the argy-bargy of a sprint finish, but then also people like Cav, you know, who's constantly getting dropped on climbs, they got to try and get back. So they're good at going downhill as well. And yeah, some of the other climbers, the lighter guys as well. You know, when you're 50 kilos, naturally you just go down a lot slower than someone 80 kilos. So yeah, a lot of the a lot of climbers are probably the worst, I'd say. But it is kind of strange how, like I said earlier, the the difference between the good and the bad descenders is is quite big in the in the pro peloton. But then you, for instance, when you're going down a hill after a, a stage in the tour, and then you're in amongst the uh, the people have come to watch it who have ridden up and they're riding down at the same time. The difference in just how they're sat on the bike, you know, you can tell they're a bit nervous, you know, they're, yeah, how they're braking and just, 
they just look awkward. And then that's when you realise actually the pros are, well, they're professionals, aren't they? That's what they do all the time. And you, you can tell a big difference there. Do you think you have to relish speed, Cal? In other words, if you let too much fear in, then that becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that you've got to embrace the speed you're going at and, and everything that comes with it. Yeah, strange thing is I don't really... I'm not saying I don't like speed. I'm not... I must be in some way, some as with all motorcycle races, a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. You have to be. But it's not the speed that attracts you. You know, it's that what attracted me was the competing. I was good at it and those things. And the speed came with it. Now, the problem is with us is the faster you go, the better you are. But yeah, I I hate watching motorcycles. For example, we tested last week and we went, I did a couple of days testing and then the, the, the racers tested after me. And I watched from the outside and I thought, that's just ridiculous. I, I've seen it a million times. I'm sat there thinking, how are they even doing that? And they were... Uh, the people that I was watching were essentially going no faster than what I was going the day before. But when you're on the bike, you just do it naturally, you know. So, yeah, strange strange feeling and vision to look at the speed, actually. Yeah, that's one thing I was going to say. Like before a TT, for instance, if, um, like a prologue or something, if I'm off last, you might follow one of your teammates and they'll they'll do the corners pretty quick and get a feel for it. And then the rest of it, they might go a bit slower. Luke Rowe, for instance, you know, he's not going to, be top 10 so he'll go quite steady the rest of it but he'll he'll give it you know full in in the corners and yeah watching sometimes from the car you're just like wow man how fast boy he did he was close to he was on the limit around that corner but then in the race you'll do it the same or even quicker and you just be like oh yeah that's fine and you'd be millimeters from the barrier and the car behind for sure they're just like holy shit what like calm down a bit don't go too crazy you're kind of like oh i'm in control here like i've still got another couple of percent i can give it is, it's, it, it's definitely worse watching than it is doing it yourself. Because you know how you're feeling as well. Like, has there been times, Carl, when you've been, where you've felt like the opposite? You felt like, shit, I'm, I'm just really struggling here. Like, the, oh, you get yeah. a bit nervous, you're a bit like, well, yeah, this yeah. just, just doesn't feel right. You know, I think what, what you were saying there about following Luke or following whoever it is, I think it's about being in control, isn't it? I hate being a passenger in a car because I think everybody's just going to yeah. crash into everybody. But, <laughs> And I'm not saying I'm controlling. I mean, it's just about being in control of, you know, I can drive this car and I know what I'm doing. Or I can ride the motorbike and fairground rides, anything like that. I hate because I'm not in control of it. So hating watching a motorcycle, same as youth that's sitting there watching a bicycle, you're sitting there thinking, it's never going to get around that or that's never going to work. Or I had that yeah. and, and I get, I feel like I'm worse for that now. The older I get, I feel that I get worse, you know, obviously our daughter Willow, she wants to go on these fairground rides and stuff like that. I'm like, no way. No, your mum will go on with you. You know, uh, <laughs> you know. Sometimes I have to suck it up and go on. But I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not too convinced by it as such. One big thing actually that I was surprised about is one of the first times I met you back in twenty thirteen, I think. Do you remember we were in Japan? You were racing and yeah, we were doing yeah. a, a crit there and we yeah. came to watch the race. Yeah, I would have rather done the crit. <laughs> You've talked a lot now about, um, you know, being in the zone and, you know, chilled and flowing and, and that type of stuff. And I was so surprised because in cycling, team pursuit especially, when in the zone for us is kind of like you've got your headphones on, you know, 20 minutes before you warm up, you're warming up, you're just thinking process, process, warming up, 
headphones still on the whole time, blocking everything out. And we came to see you and it was maybe half an hour before the race and you were just like, yeah, come in, come into the pits. Like we were there in the garage and they were working on your bike and you were just like, yeah, you can watch from here or you can go up to the fence or and there's people running around and like, you know, doing all their job in whatever it is in the garage. And I was just like, mate, I think we're just going to back away now, just leave you to it and just like go and watch in the stand or something. Because it just felt like in the cycling world, they'd be like, who are these pricks? Get them out of the way, you know? But in your world, it was just so like just chilled and i was just like you're racing in half an hour mate like yeah I, th- I think it depends who you are a lot of the riders will go and lock themselves in a room think about the race do all the things that you know they're coached to do or they think that that will make them faster the reality is that i always felt is i i was always a guy that i, I sat and looked at people on the grid sometimes and thought what are you doing they sat there staring down the track like like they're blowing holes into the tarmac with their eyes that they're that focused. And you sit there and think, mate, why? Because I tell you what, you know, going into this first corner, you can't plan this race. I can, you can never plan a race because everything at that moment, you are in control of your bike, but everything else is taken out of your control because of what somebody else might do. What about the guy at the back that doesn't break and just wipes everybody out? Then you haven't you haven't sat and stared holes in the tarmac knowing that's going to happen, are you? Thinking that you're going to win by 10 seconds. It's not going to happen. So, you know, I was always a guy to be relaxed. Of course, you're nervous. You have to be nervous. You're about to race a 300 horsepower motorbike around a track at at 350k an hour. You're going to be nervous, but it was quite good nerves, you know. And it was more, my nerves always came on the warm-up lap and when I got to the grid, not sat there on the grid. You know, I was with my mechanics, this, that, and the other, and and my wife uh, was there you can't change anything that's going to happen in the race. I was always better when I was relaxed, you know? Yeah, with those nerves, did they just completely go as soon as that race started and you were away? And then it was just sort of you're racing autopilot and you're just doing what you do? Yeah. Yeah, it was so... It's always... It's strange because another part where I always felt myself really tense, as in my body tense, was off the start line. Obviously, the G-force and the acceleration of the acceleration always made you tense. But into that first corner, I was always tense, probably holding my breath for a long time. And after that, it was just, you follow the guy in front of you. You try and stay with the pack. You defend from the people behind you. You're thinking about so many things. You, you haven't got time to be nervous. If you're nervous, you just ride straight off the track. But, you know, MotoGP, as as you know, G, from when, when we've spoken and, and rode together on the bicycle, stuff like that, it's not easy. People think that they go down to Saint-Tropez and they see these people riding a scooter and uh, and, and that's how you ride a motorbike, but it's not. <laughs> Cav's one of them. He thinks he could be a MotoGP rider. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but have you ever seen him ride a motorbike? He's, fi- he's fearless, mate. <laughs> no, I haven't. You know, he's, he's just ludicrous. <laughs> he's actually very, very good. But he's, you know, he's he's fearless. And I don't think. Don't say that. Yeah, yeah, he'd be. Say he's terrible. We've, all, you know, as you know, my relationship with Cav is, you know, he's one of my best mates. But I always have the one thing on him. I swear to you, it's always going to stick. Is I bet I'm better at your job than you are at mine. So. <laughs> Tom, there was one ride we did in in San Diego. Cav, Cal, oh, me. I think Cam Worth I know, was there. I know you're going to even. Cal say. and Cav, they were just <laughs> going hammer and tongue at each other like Cav would be shouting at a Cal Cav would be shouting back at him half wheeling like because Cal's he's not a professional cyclist 
obviously, but he's a strong bloody cyclist for three, four hours. And he just loved to just ride hard all the time. And then Cav would hate it when he was half wheeling him. They'd go up these steep little climbs. We were behind doing 600 watts at times. Like, I remember the first ride, I was like low carb. So I had like, you know, two, three egg omelette, bit of protein in my bottle. Yeah, I'll be fine. Do five hours with the boys. Holy, after like hour and a half, I was blowing. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to have to stop for some food here. <laughs> Next day, I fully fueled porridge, everything. And I was all right, but... Yeah, yeah <laughs> some we, of those rides down there. Honestly, you know, the years we've sat side by side as best mates and rode together and not spoke a word to each other for two hours. Like, <laughs> and I mean two hours, like nothing. Only left or right or something like that, but not even spoke. We're just riding that hard. And a lot of the times was when he was training for the tour as well, so it was going really well. But, uh, you know, he's a, he's a great rider, a great friend. How much he can push himself is 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 unbelievable. But I absolutely loved that day in California when he was just he just lost it, didn't he? <laughs> he just lost it, and we're right oh. we're riding home, <laughs> and he's and then you and Cam sat on the front, and me and him are sat next to each other, and we just didn't even speak. We didn't didn't say a word to each other. He said, "Why are you effing riding so hard?" Blah blah blah. Then he got to the top of the climb, didn't he? And then just never spoke all the way home. And then I, I turned off and it, he didn't even say see you or nothing, but he showed up in the morning to ride again. So. <laughs> he blew up completely up this climb, Tom. It must be, what is it, 40, 50 minute climb? Uh, or 40 minutes the, maybe? The Palomar Mountain. Yeah, it's an hour that. Yeah. Yeah, Cav was a good 20 minutes behind. You know, that just shows also, uh, gee, it shows where he came from. Because at that time, he was struggling on his bike. But little did we know he had the Epstein bar and we're just trying to smash it. Well, I was trying to smash him on the on the hill and that and Cam, Cam's there like a human yeah, good mate you are yeah well if I would have known he had, he had the virus <laughs> I would have uh, would have gone easy on him and uh, Cam's there like a human radio talking the whole way up and Cav's going I wish he'd just shut the fuck up <laughs> just, just you won't, <laughs> won't stop talking um, but yeah I've had some great days out with, with Cav on the bike you must have an appreciation Cal too of when Cav is in the last kilometre of a bunch sprint the number of decisions that he's having to make and how many chess moves ahead he's having to think and how quickly he's having to react yeah but uh, as you said you we don't want to blow too much smoke up his ass but <laughs> i think i think that he's the best at that i think he's the best at reading everything around him of, of what's going on and why he moves into the the best positions the best gaps doesn't let anybody in or does let somebody in or Whatever he does then, I think he's the best at that. Now, he's obviously very clever in his mind as well, an everyday basis, where he does his Rubik's Cubes and stuff like that. I think he can do things like that amazingly. So, And I think that that's how he reads the race at the end. Obviously, he's a great sprinter, uh, the best sprinter you know there is. So, But yeah, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do that. You know, I could probably do it on a motorbike a lot more than what I could do on the bicycle, but the gaps they have to go through, things like that, and how fast they have to do them is... Uh, you know, it's impressive. And I think also that's why you'll see Cav, if he thinks that he can't win a sprint, he'll sit up because there's no point in him trying. He's a winner. He'll, he'll roll over the line in 10th than rather finish fourth or something like that, I would say, because he can't play that chess match or he can play the chess match in his head that he knows he can't, he can't, he can't win because he can't move in that way, you know. And that's uh, an incredible thing to have when you're going at speed on, on, on a bicycle, I think. 
I think you're not too bad at making quick decisions, though, mate. Yeah, but when you're going fast. <laughs> yeah, I sit, I sit there, and I think though, honestly, I think the sprinters in cycling they don't think of the risks. Obviously, they, they, they can't think of the risks because they, sometimes they crash, etc. Where I think I would think of the risk because I, I raced a motorbike and crashed, and we have leather suits, airbags, and stuff like that. I'd never be scared, and I would go for it. But I don't think I would be amazing at it. Gee, how did you feel when? Because um, weren't you Cavs' lead-out man at the Worlds in Copenhagen in 2011? Were you going to be the last lead-out man? And then he just he abandoned ship, didn't he? Went yeah. solo. Yeah. So we basically rode from the start. I was the last man, and um, everyone had to sort of step up a bit sooner, a bit earlier, because just the way the race was going. And then it was just me and Cav left with a couple of K to go. We were sat behind. No, to be fair, Stanard was still there, I think. The boys were just incredible that day, to be fair. And then um, we get to the final corner, and I think it's maybe 500 metres to the finish. It's a bit of a slight drag. I had Cav with me. He lost the wheel around that corner. Went back for him, and... Um, came back to me and start moving him up but then the Aussies came past who had been sat on all day they also had a big favourite Matt Goss and typical Aussies just didn't do anything just left it all to us <laughs> and uh, yeah then just Cav just he just knew the right wheel to follow he knew that like um, Goss he still had two guys left had the best lead out um, jumped onto them obviously won the sprint and then so I basically just followed our train for 250k came to my job and didn't even have to do it so it was kind of um slightly disappointing in that regard because it felt like i still could have done a decent lead out but it just shows as as carl was saying cav just when he's done it that long you know he's done it since he was 12 13 and you just get that instinct you just know kind of who to follow what to do and yeah he just made the right decision he also moved before he potentially might have got boxed in this and that so yeah didn't really have to do much that day but 2013 I was also his leader man in the Giro and he won three stages there could have probably won a couple more after one of them he told me lads next time just crash so like, okay sorry about that Cav <laughs> he's straight to the point as well uh let you know what he thinks but you know that's what you want sometimes and I think I think we've we've mentioned it on the George North pod you know about being just brutally honest with with each other and um yeah cav is a bit more colorful in the language he uses sometimes but when you know him and you know it's he's it is coming from a good place it's just a bit more it may sound a bit more aggressive than somebody else maybe but that's just cav you know and he just wants the best from from everyone and uh but yeah that was that was good times because we'd grown up together on the academy or even like when we were the 14 15 16 racing around parks and all this and that and then I'm leading him out in the Giro and he's winning stages and he lost the points jersey by one point actually. So, but you know, to be at the highest level of the sport with him was, uh, yeah, it was pretty sweet. So we have some tips for our listeners on dealing with speed. And I think both of you can go this, maybe take turns. Cal, you go first. So you obviously ride a road bike at speed for people who maybe aren't struggling with it, but just start to feel a bit twitchy when they go past say 40 miles an hour and they look down at that front wheel and they have one of those existential moments where they think, there's 25 mil of rubber between me and a very lumpy road. What would your advice be? Brake. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. not too hard. Um, relax is, is, is the key. You know, I'm not saying relax your hands on the handlebars where your hands can 
come off the handlebars. I don't want to be sued for any comment I make here that somebody doesn't do that. But I mean, yeah, you've got to you've got to be relaxed. You know, if I'm if I'm if I'm going fast on a bicycle, I, I do barely hardly grip the bars. But that you know, that's me. But I mean, because I'm relaxed. Um, yeah, you've got to you've got to as we were talking about earlier, focus ahead, look ahead. Don't you don't need to be looking down at your cycling computer or your front wheel or anything like that look ahead and process what's happening in front of you because at speed things start to come up fast yeah 100 percent. i'd say exactly that they, they, they come up a lot faster than what you think that you know and what they do yeah yeah i'd say that exactly that just focus on what you're doing download your garmin or look at your max speed on your computer afterwards and say, well, oh wow i went pretty quick then but when you're doing it just yeah focus ahead and just you know go with the flow and uh when you say that, it's easy to do 40 mile an hour downhill. When we were kids, there was a little downhill with a speed camera on in a 30 mile an hour thing. And we'd always go sprinting down there to try and set off the camera. Never did, but <laughs> yeah, there we go. Happy days. Well, che- <laughs> thanks for that, Carl. It was great having you on. No, you're very, very welcome. It's good to, it's good to, to, to be on. You know, I, uh, I listen to the podcast all the time. I should come on some of our, uh, our group rides then on Zwift. You can ride at the front with all that power you got. I'll go at the back and chat to the guys. Chill out with me. Yeah. <laughs> I can do. I can do an hour uh, power hour on a Wednesday night. Because I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to cruise. Are oh, you going to win this club ride? <laughs> <laughs> right, Tom. While you and producer Lou are slaving away on your turbos in the cold and wet British winter, I thought we'd chat to some more GTCC members on why they use Zwift and see if they can give you some tips. Have a listen. Hi, my name is Ali and I have been riding on Zwift now for two years. My tip for you is to give the workout programs a go. They really are fantastic for building your fitness or for key areas of your riding. So for example, if you want to build endurance or if you're wanting to improve sprinting. The best thing though is to share this with a group of friends and there's lots of ways to get to know new people on Zwift. For example, joining a group ride. Zwift has this option where you can ride with other people of different abilities it's called the keep everyone together or rubber band effect so for example i could set up a ride in a meetup with g and not get left behind it just makes the whole experience much more social and enjoyable but you'll also build your fitness and you'll see amazing results over time give it a go and enjoy it and if you fancy giving swift a try just go to zwift.com to start your free trial today And don't forget to join our weekly GTCC group rides every Wednesday at 6pm. We'll see you there. Chairman Tom, I hear you've got some news. I've got great news, Geraint. We've got another sponsor on board. It is Lacquer Insurance. And I hear we've got a very exciting offer for our members too. But first, let's tell our listeners a bit about Lacquer. Yeah, well, Lacquer's collective cover is made especially for cyclists, just like our GTCC members listening to this. Lacquer's bicycle insurance is made for everyone, from Grand Tour winners like you to riders hitting the pedals for the first time, like our club secretary, Louise. Lacquer turned the existing insurance model on its head. Right, instead of projecting what costs it may need to cover and charging inflated prices, Lacquer only charges you based on the cost of actual claims that have been taken out that month. And your monthly price is capped too. Lacquer make money by receiving a small fee from every claim they settle. 
meaning for every settled claim, Lacquer gets paid. The more claims they settle, the more they earn. It's insurance geared towards helping cyclists get back in the saddle. And when it comes to making a claim, it is handled by their team of cycling experts and usually agreed within a day with no depreciation and no excess. And the best bit, Tom, is all our GTCC members can get an exclusive Geraint Thomas Cycling Club sweatshirt when they join Lacquer. Just head over to www.lacquer.co and sign up using the code GTCC. Enjoy. Right, Chairman Tom, it's that time of the pod where we talk anything other than business, really. Um, what have you got for us this week? We are starting off this week, G, with a shout-out to Judy Huxley, who, get this, has managed 10,000 steps a day every single day in 2021. I mean, that's massive. She says thanks to the GTCC for keeping her company on all those walks. Oh, fair play. Massive achievement, that, Judy. You'll have to... You have to let us know what your goal is for 2022. How many steps do you reckon you walk a day, G, as a cyclist who never walks? <laughs> um, not a lot, because I did do this um, Samson Stronger Together challenge around the games, right? And I was only had to do 6,000 a day. A couple of days before the race, I think I didn't. I barely got into 2,000. That <laughs> um, was basically walking to the food for food walking for breakfast lunch and dinner and that was about it so yeah not a lot not a lot at all but in october november i kind of tried to boost it up a bit to try and help my bones out you know all with the whole um what's it called now we have that dexa scan which it's bone density that's it yeah and it always comes out quite low so they're like oh, i'll try and walk a bit so you do it for two months and then you kind of go back to the routine of lying down and riding your bike so yeah <laughs> i'm gonna write down the phrase Walking for food, so we can use it as a possible chapter title in your next book. <laughs> yeah, sums it up nicely. So the next shout out goes to Sean Whitney Smith, whose wife bought him both a hoodie and a bottle, GTCC versions, for Christmas. Well, I mean, that makes Sean the coolest cat in the country. And if you want to look as cool as Sean, just go to gtccstore.com to get yours. Sean has also asked if we had a road captain for Grimsby. Sean, I am very happy to say that we don't, or rather we didn't, because you are now representing the GTCC in Grimsby, which makes you an even cooler cat. Yes, good job, Sean. Uh, new road captains for Alabama in the United States is William Jones and Pennsylvania, specifically Happy Valley, which is a great place name, isn't it? Love to live there. It's Beth Clark. Oh, yeah. And in the GTCC Facebook group, there's quite a few posts, G, asking for road captains in particular areas. Yeah, there is. So we need a road captain for the Wirral. Uh, Steve Cummins lives in the Wirral, so I'm surprised he hasn't. Uh, That's true. He's been on an earlier episode, hasn't he? I thought he would have yeah, presented for that. But uh, Also for Darlington or, to be fair, anywhere up in the northeast, really. And also one thing which is, is a bit of a disgrace is we don't even have one for Cardiff yet, Tom. What? I know. Unbelievable. That is unbelievable, but less so when you find out that we've actually only got two road captains for the whole of your native land of Wales. We've got more in Scotland at the moment. So listen, if you're Welsh and you want to be a road captain, A, where have you been? B, get in touch. 
Uh, and to finish, we had a nice story in from one of our members. This is from Luke Roberts. Luke says, My warehouse manager's family have a house in the south of France. After G won the tour, my warehouse manager was on a plane from Nice with a spare seat next to him, wondering who was going to sit next to him. In his words, a, quote, well-dressed chap took up the seat, which is between him and his girlfriend. So he starts chatting to this chap, asking him about his life. Turns out this guy just done a boat race. Uh, he says to him, did you do well? The chap says, yeah, not too bad. Um, needless to say, he says, look, my warehouse manager doesn't have a clue about cycling. It wasn't until the plane landed and people came over and started taking photos of this chap that his girlfriend told him that Garrett Thomas had just won the Tour de France and had just been sitting next to him. <laughs> uh, that's funny that I, can't, I don't even remember that to be honest I think I might have been a bit bit tipsy but that's a great story that isn't it not too bad that is the most Welsh summation of winning the Tour de France of all time <laughs> see you next week that was the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club Thanks to Club Secretary Louise Gwilliam, Head of Music Emma Hickman, Head of Social Fionn Clark and our Honorary President Mike Carr. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next time. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.